Well, praise the Lord. Thank you for being here tonight. And uh, certainly have had a good day. I'll, I've been asked already, I'll tell you, our uh, daughter and visitors got home safely about uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, I think. But um, that was their their way. So praise the Lord and what a blessing that was. Uh, my kids think it's hilarious because all of my life, I've been the one that always surprises them. I show up, you know, they think we're here and we show up there. And they just absolutely wiped us out the other day. So I'll get even, but praise the Lord. Take your Bible, if you would, and open the book of Psalms, chapter 57 tonight. Psalms, chapter 57. Let me find your place, if you'd stand with me. Psalms 57, the Bible says this. To the chief musician, Alta Sheath. Miktam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me. For my soul trusteth in thee, yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. He shall send from heaven and shall save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up, Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions, and I lie even among them that are set on fire, even the sons of men, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens." Let thy glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me into the midst whereof they are fallen themselves. Selah. My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. Awake up, my glory. Awake, psaltery and harp. I myself will awake early. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations. For thy mercy is great unto the heavens, and thy truth unto the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Father, thank you tonight. And we would pray that very thing tonight. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. and Let thy glory be above all the earth. Lord, as we'll understand once again tonight that your glory is really only found when your things are done your way in your power for your purpose. Help us tonight, Father, uh, to learn from your word, to be both instructed, challenged, and convicted that we might be transformed and walk through difficult times in absolute obedience following Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing tonight, and please be seated. Well, this is the third of six Miktam Psalms. The first one uh, we have not looked at and probably won't. I, I don't anticipate it. But it is in the Psalms number 16. I call it the Psalm Miktam Psalm out of due season. It's in the wrong place. But... Um, 
but it has a little bit of a different uh, approach or uh, where the circumstance that it discusses. But the rest of them are here, 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60. And they really all do tie together uh, historically. I believe the 16th Psalm does some as well. Uh, but they really tie together historically, and they all tie together, I believe, with almost a progressive message of how we travel through these difficult times we described and stay on the course of obedience to God. We do have an enemy that will do anything possible to get us to uh, disobey our God, to get out of faithfulness, to go our own way and not his. At junior camp, we often teach children, did last week, that, uh, that disobedience is when I say no to God and do what I want to do. That's a good uh, thing for probably all of us to remember. I don't know why we only teach it to junior campers, but we do. But, uh, you know, uh, our enemy desires for us to uh, set down along the way. You know, you don't have to get into, you don't have to get into gross uh, sin and immorality to dishonor God. And that's certainly dishonoring to God. But, you know, I think it's just as devastating to the glory of God from your life and mine when we just stop in the process. When we're just not moving forward, when we're no longer uh, shining the light, we just uh, we just stop. We would say, uh, oh, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not changed at all. But the truth is, is we stop seeking the Lord. We uh, we stop uh, uh, praising the Lord, perhaps. We stop uh, seek, uh, seeking Him in His Word. We stop uh, praying. We stop testifying. And all of those things, while they may not be uh, some big, hairy, gross sin as we would think about it, uh, they really are the thing that says, your God that you claim to be worthy is not able to cause you to be faithful to him. I'm just telling you that for this reason, that these uh, psalms that uh, sort of weave together that we talked about last night where they uh, uh, really put in place these markers in our life when difficult times come that we can navigate to, their truths uh, concerning who God is and how how God uh, acts and what we should be seeking in our life. Uh, These things are necessary because stopping along the way is devastating to the work of God. Now, I'm not talking about your pastor that would be devastating too, right? I'm talking about you and I. Do you understand that that the glory of God uh, rests as squarely and as dependent, if you will, that this church, the, the ability of this church to bring glory to God rests as squarely on your shoulders as it does your pastor's shoulders. And really in many ways more. Uh, you've been uh, showing all week a slide up there that says, you know, uh, I don't know, something why people come to church. And, you know, like 86% when you ask them, 6% when he asks them. I mean, I don't really think he's a 6% guy, but that's just the, that's just the statistics. He could be at least an 8%er. Somebody say amen. Got to do yard work with him today. Filled in a lot of holes. First, we created the holes. They're called divots, I think, but uh, <laughs> I was trying to make it sound good. I do want to report this to you, though. He did honor God all day. There were a few bad hits on the golf course. All of them were mine, but um, he, he, he didn't swear one time today. I won't say I was shocked, but I was relieved. Amen. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Would you please understand that it is necessary for us to continually walk forward in our life with Christ? And when that forward progress stops, you know, you're either going forward or you're going backwards. That's the truth of the matter. You're never just setting still. And when that, when that forward movement, that growth and that transformation stops, what it does is it takes out of your life and it just, it just hides the, the brightness and the glory of God from your life. These miktoms are of extreme importance in our life so that we can keep walking along the way. And last night we learned that, that we don't run in fear, that we walk by faith, faith in the unrelenting goodness of our God. And that no matter how devastatingly relentless and hard our circumstances are, our God is more uh, relentless. Our God is more faithful. His goodness is greater than all of those things. Tonight, the 57th Psalm, the heading is a little different. I mentioned it last night. We won't spend much time on it. It does uh, not give us great musical instruction. We know that because that uh, that word on or upon is not there. So it's not saying like we saw, play the music this way. This is something about disposition. And it is a little bit interesting, I think, tonight. Uh, the word is altashith to the chief musician. We understand that already. Altashith. And I just mentioned briefly, that word means, it's uh, really a couple of words, but it's, it, it means this, do not destroy, or do not pervert, do not mar this. That what has to be accomplished here, or the, the truth that's given in this psalm, it's uh, important for you to understand that it's something that must always be kept. Now, I guess you could make that argument about all of these. These miktoms are things that have great value and that are permanent or engraved, and that we uh, we understand them at least as a stell, a, a marker uh, uh, with engraving on it about God, and and you know that we put into our life. But but there are really uh, the rest of these uh, 56, 57, 58, and I think 59, uh, 57, 58, and 59 and 60 uh, that that have this single uh, word alta sheath. And that's the instruction. And he says this, listen, uh, you, you need to know this, that what's, what's going to be given to you here, uh, chief musician, I need to be kept before the people. I need it to always be involved in the, in, in the routine of worship. I don't want this to be a song that, uh, or a psalm with a truth that, you, that it's popular for a while, and then you set it aside, and all of a sudden the truth that's in there, it's out of the minds of the people. This truth must be kept in their life, and so you must keep this psalm before them constantly in their life. Alta sheath. Do not destroy You probably would understand that when you think about how music goes in church. There are some songs that we've sung forever and will, I hope. There are others that, that have become very popular for a little while, and uh, every, uh, every uh, week of camp, somebody sings them, and, and uh, they're sung in specials, and then it's not very long before they just sort of fade away and you just don't hear them anymore. And I'm not making a judgment about them. I just want you to understand that that's precisely what God doesn't want to happen with the truth in these psalms. That it just doesn't become a passing fad. Why? Well, because when truth becomes a passing fad, 
forward momentum also becomes intermittent at best. And some things have to be kept in our life so that we are constantly, regardless of what's going on around us, moving forward in our walk with God. To the chief musician, Alta Sheath. And then a circumstance. When he fled from Saul in the cave. We left David last night. He'd run from Saul to the Philistines and from the Philistines um, to the cave of Adullam there. And, and, uh, and he was hiding in there. I believe it was there that the 56th Psalm was pinned. I believe it's there that he said this, God, I can't go on like this. Uh, what time I'm afraid I'll trust in you. And he made that great decision of faith in his life. But this cave is not that cave. This is sometime later. I'll give you a little bit of history, kind of where we go from there, uh, from, from uh, where we were at last night in the, in the time frame of history to where we pick up in the 57th Psalm tonight. There has been a considerable period of time uh, that has passed. It's really covered in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter uh, 21, the end of it, and, and 22 and 23. And I just want to describe a little bit of it to you. David, when he gathers at Adullam or when he goes there, word gets out somehow, and all of a sudden, uh, people begin to gather unto Adullam. Uh, his family begins to come to him and all those that are sort of out of place that don't have anywhere else to go. It seems like in Israel they come to him and, and there's about 400 people that end up there over some period of time gathering themselves to follow after David at the cave of Adullam. And finally, a, a man of God, a prophet, I guess, comes and, and warns him and says, you can't stay here. I mean, your footprint, if I can say it that way, is too big. You're not hidden anymore. Saul's coming after you, and you've got to get out of there. David takes his parents, and he, and he uh, takes them over to Moab, and he asks the king of Moab if he'll care for his parents. That may seem like a strange thing to you. You might think, why would an Israelite go to a Moabite when they weren't allowed to enter into the congregation for 10 generations? I mean, that's just weird for David, the next king of Israel, to take his parents to Moab to be cared for. I would tell you it's not weird. It's completely natural. If you think about who David's grandmother is, Ruth the Moabitess, she went home to family. And then David and Saul begin this cat and mouse game that I mentioned again briefly last night. We won't take the time to read it, but it just really goes like this. David and his a band, they go to one place to hide, to, to a wood or to a city or just to a place. And somehow someone reveals that to Saul, that David and his men are here. And so Saul mounts up the armies and he begins to go there. And, and so David gets word that Saul is coming and, and he'll leave there and go one place. In fact, in one place in, in uh, chapter 23, I guess it is, of 1 Samuel, it says that David went on one side of the hill and Saul went on the other side of the hill. Literally cat and mouse all the way through this. And the only time the pursuit ever let off David is when some other uh, engagement militarily came into the life of Israel. So uh, when the Philistines would come and attack Israel, Saul would stop chasing David, and he would go fight the Philistines. But as soon as he was done fighting the Philistines, he'd come back and go after David again. And in one of those occasions, 
uh, Saul fights the Philistines. And while he's there, the Bible tells us there again, and we'll go back and look at something in a little bit, but the Bible tells us that David went uh, to a different cave, and not the cave of Adullam here, um, but he went to a different cave, and he was hiding out there. And Saul, when he let off uh, from fighting the Philistines, he takes 3,000 men. He hears that David is in the area of Engedi. You're probably uh, familiar with that. And he takes these 3,000 men, and he just uh, builds a ring around that place. If you've ever uh, been to that place, you know it's full of springs and, and gullies, wadis, they would call them, and, and caves and all of that. And, and so David is in there, and Saul takes 3,000 choice soldiers and just builds a ring. Let's just call it what it is, or Saul intends it to be, a ring of death around that. And this is what he does. He just sort of draws that circle tighter, knowing that eventually anybody in there will be caught up in that. It's just a trap. That's all it is. And David is hiding in the cave, and Saul is trying to finally put an end to this. And we pick up Psalms 57. It begins again with a prayer for God's mercy. Be merciful unto me, O God, and be merciful unto me. For my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I take my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up, Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. David, in this pursuit, now begins to cry out to God for help again. I want to establish, I want to establish the pillar with you, the, the mikton, the stel. Here's what it is. No matter how dark the circumstances in your life get, no matter how unjust, no matter how unreasonable, unfair, no matter how unmanageable, overbearing, the way that God would have us to navigate them is simply this, that no matter what, we're to pursue one thing, and that is the glory of God. That no matter, no matter what's going on, no matter if the entire life as you know it, that's what's happening in David's life, is crumbling in. It's falling apart. You, uh, every time there's a, a ray of hope, it seems it's extinguished by some activity of an enemy. Uh, but here's what he says. No matter what's going on, here's what I want you to do. Not get caught up on pursuing some kind of victory over that or, 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 uh, or anything like that. Just pursue my glory. Just, uh, just uh, set your course to, uh, to give me what I'm, uh, what I'm due from your life. Listen, all God really is due from your life is all of your life, but that's because it magnifies and glorifies him. And, and the chief end that we have is to bring glory to God. And listen to me tonight. We get off course because of circumstances in our life, or we stop, or we begin to be uh, walk in disobedience. Can I tell you, I already really have, but it just erases, it just, it just veils or, or, or just uh, covers the glory of God that's, that has uh, should be and, and has been and has potential to come from your life. And here's what has to happen. That no matter how bad it is, 
that you seek the glory of God. I know that we live in a day when we're looking for comfort and help. I'm just here to tell you that if you seek the glory of God, you'll find God. And when you find God, you'll find all the help you've ever needed. And then some. So David begins to cry out to God. I also want to tell you that David is already putting in place the, the things that God has established. I'll tell you this, we won't study it, but the real marker from the 16th Psalm is this, that when things are, that when things are difficult in your life, when those circumstances are as we've described, here's what the 16th Psalm would teach us. Seek refuge in God alone. No other refuge. You have only one hiding place in your life. Every other hiding place is known to the enemy and penetrable uh, by untruth and the enemy. But there's one hiding place, one rock, one high tower, uh, one fortress, and one shield that can never be attacked and overtaken by our enemy, and that is hiding ourselves in God alone. And we find David doing precisely that in verse 1, where he begins to cry out and say, Be merciful to me, O God, Uh, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I take my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. Listen, David is going through the midst of this trial, and it will still go on for some time. And here's what he says this. Look, I'm not going to try to hide uh, in some some, um, uh, fortress that I make. I'm just going to do this, God. I'm going to hide myself in you. Why? Because David learned that truth. He he also is trusting in the goodness of God, as we saw last night. Verse 2 says, I will cry uh, unto God uh, most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. That's not God being on a, on a magical uh, uh, genie lamp chain for David. That's David saying, look, I know God is good, and that whatever that needs to come into my life, when I can't do it at all, I know that God is good, and I'm just going to cry out to him, and I'm going to trust in him because of the unrelenting goodness of God. So would you note tonight that David is obeying the truth that's just been established No, no, no. We don't do this well. We agree with truth, but often don't carry it out of the church. We don't carry it out into our life. And for truth to accomplish God's purpose of transformation and and by that bringing glory to him, it has to go out of this place. It has to not just be a good idea. It has to not be a theological theory. It has to be a living reality in our life. If God is to be seen as the refuge that's worthy of hiding in, he has to be your refuge uh, when all lost people and all the people of this world are observing your life. It just has to be lived. Does everybody understand that tonight? Boy, if you don't get anything, I hope you do, but get this, the truth that we get in our head that doesn't come out of our life is really not truth that we've learned at all. It's all theory to us. And it may make us feel good for a moment, but it doesn't really accomplish any of God's purposes. What you know to be true, what you know that God has said, what you know is God has, uh, has determined or commanded for your life, I'm telling you that when you leave this place tonight and you'll pick up some more, that you ought to go out of here saying, how in the world do I live this at work tomorrow? How do I live this at school tomorrow? And how do I live this for the rest of my life? 
Because it'd be far better to have a silent room with no amens and a loud echo of truth out there than to have a boisterous room of celebration and silence about truth out there. Because God must get glory through his people. But David does that. David lives the truth. And he demonstrates his confidence in God and he demonstrates his pursuit. Now I want you to notice verse 3. It says, he, will, he shall sin from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. So let me make sure you understand this. Saul is not um, pursuing David to reproach David. He's not suing him to say, you're bad. He's pursuing David to kill David. But what does he pray for? David prays for salvation or deliverance from reproach. He doesn't say here, uh, please save my life. He says, he'll send from heaven and save me from the reproach. Well, probably we all know what reproach is, and probably better than I do, but it's when, uh, you know, things are said about you that, that aren't good. They would bring you down. They would lower your esteem and your testimony. They would maybe be false. Sometimes we live reproachable lives, and we should stop that. Amen? But the thing that David understands that I need you to is that reproach into the life of a Christian doesn't just stop in your life. You see, when, when folks know that you're a follower of Jesus and then you're reproachable, whether it be true or not true against you, a lot of reproach is really not true at all. But when the reproach is cast upon you, it really doesn't, it really doesn't stain you as much as it stains him. That's why what we do in our testimony outside of this building and even the condition of this building to a degree and, and how we uh, carry ourselves in every phase of our life. It matters so much because as a child of the king, everything that would come at me comes at him. And really, it's not me that they say you're a weak guy. It's really him that they say he's not strong enough to keep you uh, faithful to him. He's not worthy enough to cause you to, uh, to sacrifice and follow him. No, no, David understood this, that reproach against David uh, was reproach against God. Say, I don't think that makes sense, that he would just be concerned about the reproach and not the death. Well, but we settled that last night, didn't we? Didn't God say that David was going to be the next king of Israel? And didn't David say, what time I'm afraid I'll trust in you? And didn't he say, you know, in God I will praise thy word. Why? Because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And didn't David come to understand that if God said you're the next king of Israel, that was going to happen while you're alive. The issue of this is settled. And David doesn't have to go back there uh, now as all of this is still going on. There's uh, cat and mouse and, and uh, all of these things. That's not his concern any longer as his survival. He's completely trusting in God to do what God promised he would do. This would be a good time to pause. Folks, 
In our age, where we live, we need to quit laying the basics again and again and again and start moving forward. It's okay to go back and restore foundations, but we need to be moving forward on those truths. There ought to be a difference in your life today than there was a year ago. Because you took that truth and you built upon that truth and there ought to be a difference in your life a week from now and, and a month from now and a year from now. And you say, how much can change in a week? Well, that's kind of up to you. But we got to stop playing around at ground level. And David has moved on from fear of death by faith in God. And now he's pursuing the glory of God by saying, God, I need you to lift this reproach off of me. Because the reproach that comes upon me comes upon you. And that's really all that's going on here as far as his cry. Verse 4 makes it clear to us. He says, my soul is among lions and I lie even among them that are set on fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. The weapons that he's concerned about here are not the physical weapons of warfare. They are the weapons of words. Reproach. And then he makes it clear that all of this is because his great desire is that instead of the reproach that comes at him removing the esteem of his God from the eyes of others, that God would get all the glory he was due from David's life. And the refrain or the chorus of this psalm we find in verse 5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. If there's any doubt in your mind tonight that the thing that needs to be put in place in your life as a marker, as a miktam, is that no matter how difficult life gets, you pursue the glory of God and nothing else because he is worthy of all of that. And if David hasn't convinced you, then the refrain of this psalm ought to make it clear that David's single pursuit while he's doing all of these things is the glory of God. Everybody here? Verse 6, we have a turning point. And we're beginning to learn how God can get glory from your life in overwhelmingly unfair circumstances. And it has everything to do with how you deal with it. In verse 6, it says this, They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me into the midst whereof they themselves are fallen, Selah. So he went in verse 3 and said that God was, he was asking God to spare him or remove him from the reproach. And he does say this phrase, I want you to notice it. God shall send forth, verse 3, his mercy and his truth. And when you get down to verse 6, he says everything that he said, that it is reproach and that they're after him and that his pursuit is the glory of God. And he's counting on God to send forth his mercy and his truth. And he says this in verse 6. Well, uh, here's the status update of my journey with Saul. They have set a net for me. He's referring there to the, to the net of a fowler when he says this. They, they have set a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit for me. Both of those things, the net and the pit, those are traps. They're, they're really hunting traps. 
The net of the fowler would be made out of uh, green wood and, and uh, um, netting material uh, woven around it and it would be made in two halves like a clamshell and, and uh, uh, what they would do is they would take it, they would bend it down like this with that green wood wanting to spring back. They'd put a bar or a, a, a stick or something in between it, put uh, underneath the net that's there, they would put whatever birds like to eat, bird food I suppose, and, uh, and they would set it there. And when a bird would fly down and set on that branch, that's the only way he could do it, and reach down to uh, to try to get that bird food, it would disturb that thing, and the net would go, and the, the bird would be food. And the pit is a hunting picture as well, where they would uh, dig a pit, and even a warfare picture, but it's a trap where uh, where they would dig a pit and maybe cover the pit, and, and then they would allow their prey or their enemy to be uh, drawn over it. And when they did, they'd fall into the pit, and they'd they'd be defeated, killed, uh, food, or, or, or whatever the case is appropriate there. But both of these are traps that Saul and his men have set for David, and David is saying, God removed my reproach. They've set a, they've set a, a net for me. But then he says this in verse six at the end of it. He says, into the midst whereof they are fallen themselves. Selah. This is the good part. The trap is Saul and his men with this ring around David tightening the noose in the cave there at Engedi. Put one of your ribbons here in Psalms 57 and go back to 1 Samuel with me very quickly in chapter 24. I probably will go back and forth a little bit tonight uh, between here for the next few minutes, but I do want you to get this very clearly. See, God's glory must be your pursuit, your chief pursuit in difficult times. In chapter 24, we have these events. It, just read a little bit with you. It says, And it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi, 1 Samuel 24 and verse 1. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats by the way uh, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. So just so you and I have the same picture in our brain, David and his men are hiding from Saul and his armies, and they're back in a cave in Engedi. And during the daylight, Saul happens to stumble upon that. Here's what you know that means, that the armies are all but on top of David and his men. Because the king doesn't go out on the battlefield without his soldiers. Right? So if Saul is there, the soldiers are right there. And Saul needs, it says to, I don't remember how it says it, cover his feet or uh, uncover his feet that he went in there and into the cave where he was at. And, and David and his men were on the side. He went in to cover his feet, verse 3, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. So when Saul comes up, David and his men go as far back into that cave as they can into the dark shadows of that cave. Say, preacher, obviously they'd be seen. Well, obviously they weren't. 
But I mean, you've been out in the desert sun and you go into a dark cave and you have business to take care of while you're in there. You're A, not focusing on the sides of the cave and B, your eyes are not adjusted and the cave is enough to hide them, period. So Saul uh, begins to prepare to cover his feet. And in order to cover his feet, uh, hygienically, he had to take off his outer robe. And so he would have taken off his outer robe and laid it, you know, over a rock or whatever was there. And then he would have begun to cover his feet. And when Saul comes in, listen to this. David's men said, this is what God said. This is truth. God said he's going to deliver him into your hand and you can do whatever you want to with him. David, kill that dude. So David creeps out of the shadows and he can't really go any further. And he grabs that robe and he cuts off the bottom of it and he sneaks back into the shadows. You want to know why? Verse 5 says, it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord's. So David stayed his servants with these words and they and suffered them not to rise up against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. David, uh, his heart was smote. Why? Because, please get this, God never said what they said he said. No, no, look at your Bible. They said, this is what God said. This is time for you. God has done what he said he'd do. He delivered him into his hand. You can cut off his head. You can, you can put it on a stick. You know, I don't know. You can do whatever you want to do to him. You can paint his toenails and call him funny. But I mean, you can just do whatever you want to do to him. That's what God said. And David started to move, didn't he? But then the truth came to David's brain. Because here's what God actually said in the actual written word of God. Touch not mine anointed. And David is going to be the king of Israel. But it ain't God's time or David would be the king of Israel. And David is not willing to take these matters into his own hands based upon untruth. And so what he did was he spared Saul's life based upon truth. All right. I'll give you a quiz. By an amen, everyone that believes that Saul deserved to die Say amen. He was a skunk. He was wasting God's resources on his own unfounded journey to kill somebody. He was a jealous, petty, smelly, hairy skunk. So you're just not very nice. I know. What would you call him? David, who's done nothing... They're trying to kill him. Saul's a skunk. In fact, you want to know how big of a skunk he is? Here's how big of a skunk he is. The reproach that's on David 
is coming from Saul. I know you're looking at me like, have you lost your mind, preacher? How do you know that? Were you there? No, I wasn't there. Here's how I know that. Because the 3,000 chosen men were at least some of, if not all, of the same men who just before all this started rode into battle with David and said this, we trust that man with our life. When he tells us to attack, we'll attack. He's a leader and a warrior and a man of God. And they said that. And they said that with their, uh, they said that with their actions. And they said it over and over again. They followed David out when he slew his ten thousands. They cheered for David when he drugged the bloody head of Saul, of, of uh, Goliath, back up to Saul. These were men who had a, a, a warrior's heart bond with David. Many of us probably don't know what that is. I'm just telling you that it's something that's not easily broken. And these were men that were now pursuing David to his death that had had that with David. Why? Because they had been lied to. They had been told that David was trying to, uh, to surreptitiously uh, take the kingdom from Saul and from Jonathan, that he was a murderer, and that he was after Saul to kill him. He, they had been casting reproach upon David, and this was all God's work, wasn't it? Remember David's prayer for God to remove the reproach that God would do that. God would do that by sending forth his, God's mercy, and his, God's truth. And you just saw it in action. Because Saul walked into that cave, and every man in there believed that David should kill him. And David, for a moment, drew his sword But then God's truth stepped in. And when God's truth stepped in, David began to act in God's mercy. And instead of killing Saul, he spared his life. You want to know why? Well, because David's a good man. No. Because David's a man after God's own heart. And it was God's mercy and God's truth that spared Saul's life that day. And Saul gets up and walks out of the cave, and David walks out behind him. And read a little bit more with me, and we'll go back to Psalms 57 and wrap this up. Verse 9, or verse 8, it says, David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's word, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord hath delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave. And some bade me kill thee, but mine eyes spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not, now know, know thou and see that there is neither, neither evil nor transgression in mine, in mine hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judged between me and thee, and the Lord avenged me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. 
As for the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon me. After thee, uh, after whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? The Lord therefore judge, and judge between me and thee, and see and plead my cause, and deliver me out of thine hand. And it came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, Please listen, thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas uh, I have rewarded thee evil, and thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me. For as much as when the Lord had delivered me into thine hand, thou killedest me not. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good, for that thou hast done unto me this day. And now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord, that thou will not cut off my seed after me, and will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David sware unto Saul, and Saul went home. But David and his men got them up unto the hole. Go like this with me. Woo! Do you see what just happened? Where the king is, the soldiers are. And when David goes out and yells across the way to Saul, and Saul yells back, there are 3,000 choice soldiers of Israel who hear every word echoing through the rocks of Engedi. And they hear David say this, I could have killed you, but I didn't because of God. And they hear Saul say, you are more righteous than I, and the kingdom will rightly be yours. And at that moment, reproach lifts. Who's the victor in this battle? Humanly speaking, David. Who's the real victor? God. And would you understand this? That to pursue God's glory means that we pursue it his way. His instruments, his tools. And this is hard for us as red-blooded Americans and, you know, whatever Second Amendment toters and, you know, I don't know, I haven't read all the bumper stickers in the parking lot, but I'm scared of some of you. God's weapons are not weapons of the flesh. God expects you and I to go through these hard times and have opposition come to us and really prevent reproach by dealing with those who oppose us with God's mercy and God's truth. See, it's the truth that beget the mercy, I believe. That God, David took the truth and said, no, that's not how God does things, and acted in God's mercy. But it's always this, it's always mercy and truth. And the way that God deals with you in your life is mercy and truth. You should be glad about that. You should be glad that God doesn't deal with you in justice and truth. Because truth is you deserve justice. But he gave you mercy. Right? And his name is to be glorified for it. Why? Because God always does that. 
David knew it so much that, that he said this in his prayer. Look, I know you're going to deliver me, and you're going to do it with your mercy and your truth. Hey, listen, we got to get over the idea that somehow we're bad. Right? We're tough guys. We win battles with our wits and with our weapons and, and however else. No, no, no. I'm going to tell you what we are. We're, we're, we're servants of the Most High God. We're, uh, we're, we're disciples of the King of Kings. And, and I'm telling you that if we're ever going to bring glory to his name in the most difficult times, the times when you're most apt to stand up and bow your chest out and say, you can't do that to me. Instead of that, we deal with our enemies in God's mercy and in God's truth. God's truth says, that we're to love them that hate us. Do good to them that despitefully use us. And bless them that curse us. God's truth. And that is not our common response. Our common response is to act with the same vitriol as the world around us does. To be angry and want to defeat and destroy and remove opposition. Opposition that all the while, uh, even though uh, they're not walking with God, that God shed the blood of his son for so that, that he could redeem them too. And they'll really have no access to truth if they don't see mercy and truth and experience it in your life. Preacher, I just don't know if I can do that. Well, if you don't, you'll get off the path. You'll begin to walk your own way, not God's way. Because you'll want to deal with those who are against you or oppose you or you see somehow that way without God's mercy and without God's truth. David acts in God's mercy. His punishment was withheld. He acts in God's truth, reality in place of false statements. And in doing that, God uses his mercy and truth to lift the reproach off of David. Know this tonight, that if David had killed Saul in that cave, I believe he'd have probably still become the king but he'd have been a tainted king all of his life. Because every day someone would have said, well, yeah, okay, you're the king, but we know how you got it. You got it by sneak attacking the king before you in a cave and killing him in a vulnerable moment. And his life for the rest of his life would have been filled with reproach, which meant that what God was doing in David would have been filled with reproach and no glory for God at all. For one reason, David would have in that moment responded his way instead of God's mercy and God's truth. You should understand tonight that a decision in a moment can change the trajectory of your life and the glory of God from your life. And you should be deciding that no matter how unfair, how unjust, how un-American, the opposition that comes against us is that our weapons will be God's mercy and God's truth. And that we're not going to fight these battles in the flesh. And that we're not going to take up the same words or weapons that the world around us does. 
say, preacher, I mean, can't we have our guns? You can have whatever you want to have. I'm just here to tell you that if you win your religious liberty by battling the police at the door of your church, you'll bring reproach on God. We're to love them that hate us. Do good to them that despitefully use us. And bless them that curse us. Back in Psalms 57, if you go back there quickly. When God sees, or when David sees God be true to who he is, in verse 7, he says this, My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. I will wake up at my glory. Awake, psaltery, and harp. I myself will wake up. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations. Listen to this. For thy mercy is great unto the heavens, and thy truth unto the clouds. Do you know that when you and I begin to, uh, to interact in our life, in difficult times or good times, with those who oppose us in God's mercy or truth, the one thing we'll never run out of is God's mercy and God's truth. That it is great unto the heavens, that it fills the heavens, and that his glory fills all of the earth. And they're always at hand if we're willing to, uh, to just, uh, just appropriate it, just to go to this place that we can always find the glory of God, no matter how difficult, by doing this, by pursuing God's glory, no matter what's coming on in our life. Well, preacher, how do I do that? By dealing with those that are against me, those that I see as obstacles, in God's mercy and in God's truth. Not in my way. Not in my strength. Not in my anger. Not in my rights. The rights that will last forever are in this book and not in the Constitution. I'm for the Constitution, but the rights that will last forever are here, not there. We don't demand our rights. We seek the glory of our God. We don't fight with the weapons of the world. We engage with God's mercy and God's truth. Or at least we should. Because it is there that God begins to get praise that brings him glory from our life. And David closes this psalm with his heart's cry in all of this. Not a throne. That's not David's heart's cry. Not life. That's not David's heart's cry. Not power or authority. That's not David's heart's cry. His heart cry is this. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. If God is going to be exalted in this place, in this city, in this state, in this county, and if his glory is going to be lifted up in this place, it's going to be because of the way you as God's people deal with those who are on the other side of the fence from you. And if that's not God's mercy and God's truth, we not only don't bring glory to God, we, in fact, dishonor God in that conflict. I would challenge you tonight with two things. We live in an age of hatred and conflict. It's all around us. We don't disagree with people anymore. We hate them to destroy them on every front. Here's the problem. That's not God's instrument of warfare. That's not God's mercy or God's truth. 
We somehow want politics to solve our religious issues. Church, you listen to me today. We, we, they can't and we wouldn't want them to if they could. The way that we have revival, the way that we overcome all of the things in the world is by, by walking and trusting in the unrelenting goodness of our God. And as we deal with our enemies, here's what we do. We deal with them in God's mercy and in God's truth every time. Now, that's not always been true of you, has it? And it's quite possible as we sit here today, some of us are so wrapped up in the events of the day that there's no room left in our, in our, in our life towards and our attitude towards others for God's mercy or God's truth. And I'm going to challenge you to repent from that tonight. To get on your face at this altar before God and admit to God where you have been fighting in the public square, on even on social media or whatever it is, but you've been doing it uh, with the weapons of the world and not with the mercy and truth of Almighty God. I'm telling you tonight, church, we don't get to revival as long as we're trying to go through this our way and not God's way. To erect in your life a monument of truth and to commit to it tonight. Put this miktam in place by prayer of commitment and brokenness before God and say this to God. In every conflict that comes ahead, small or great, I will pursue your glory by dealing with my opposition in your mercy and your truth alone. Your man card is not found in the number of AR-15s you have and how much camouflage hangs in your closet. You're a man or a woman when you can in humility follow your God and let him be big and you stay small. Tonight, let's deal with the fact that we've fought on the world's terms far too long. And let's commit our lives, erect a monument where we can navigate to every time there's conflict that says this. Pursue the glory of God in all of this by dealing with them in his mercy and his truth. We go no further until we overcome this by grace. Stand with me tonight. Father, thank you.